The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jed Fahey. He is the director of the Coleman Chemo Prevention Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds a doctorate in nutritional biochemistry, and I heard him speak at the 8th Annual Agroforestry Symposium at the University of Missouri the title of which was Enhancing Health, Conservation, and Livelihoods, Medicinal Plants in Agroforestry. And I knew his presentation was just what I wanted to bring our listeners. So welcome, Dr. Fahey. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I was perusing your website, chemopreventioncenter.org, in preparation for our interview, and I stumbled upon your goal, which is to identify novel opportunities for modifying human nutrition to develop protective agents that will reduce the risk of a variety of chronic and degenerative diseases and prolong the period of wellness in our lives. And I thought, oh, bingo, that is just what registered dietitians want to do as well. So we are perfectly matched here. And I want to start our conversation about what got you interested in this area of human nutrition, this idea of chemo prevention or green prevention. Well, I suppose that's a long story, but I will make it a short one. When I graduated from college, I wound up going to getting a master's degree in plant physiology, and I studied algal physiology, the physiology of microalgae. And that was a long time ago when people were thinking more seriously perhaps than nowadays about growing microalgae on human waste material in space. NASA was funding a variety of projects, the place where I got my degree, looking at algal biomass production um, and life support systems and that Hmm. sort of thing. I then spent 15 years in the agricultural biotechnology industry thinking that some of the lofty goals that were put out there by these companies that I worked for were going to keep me having fun doing research uh, for the rest of my career, and that didn't really turn out to be the case. A lot of these promises were very long-term and lofty, but uh, they were pretty pretty flimsy and evaporated in some cases. And so eventually I decided that it was time for a change, and I I found someone at Johns Hopkins University who had just discovered sulforaphane, a phytochemical, in broccoli. His name was Paul Talalay, and uh, he invited me to come and join the group that he had at the time, which was a small group looking at the ability of phytochemicals, really, to, or compounds from plants, to protect against cancer at the time. So he was a cancer biologist. Uh, still, I suppose, considers himself a cancer biologist. But at the time, there was very little attention being paid to the fact that maybe one could prevent cancer from occurring in the first place by judicious choice of 
dietary components. And so he was really one of the pioneers of uh, this idea that that we've later come to call green chemoprotection or frugal medicine, whereby we think we can select foods, or perhaps they may be sub put in the form of supplements, and use them to protect against cancers. Now, of course, the clinical proof of that pudding is very, very difficult. It takes a lot of money and a lot of people and a long time to prove that by changing a diet of someone, you can alter their risk of getting a variety of cancers. So a lot of those studies are done in animals and done by proxy and done by looking at biomarkers of cancer um, to infer prevention. Interestingly, this compound sulforaphane from broccoli, which we can talk more about later, turns out to be protective in a number of different ways by a number of different pathways against a surprisingly large number of chronic diseases that span everything from probably cancer, some cancers, to antibiotic activities that are selective to, in fact, um, perhaps things like neurodevelopmental diseases. We're doing a number of clinical trials in collaboration with others, looking at ability to protect against autism and, and schizophrenia, for example. Mm-hmm. And I should mention that since I came to Hopkins in 93, and when the field of, of prevention was very small and sort of overlooked by many in the mainstream, it's grown enormously. And I think it's fair to say that there are many, many more people now who are like-minded and who think that dietary changes do have the potential for a lot of reasons, a huge number of reasons, to to affect a better health span or the period of life during which one is living a healthy, uh, relatively disease-free existence. And so let me let you ask another question now. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting because dietitians are that's how we frame the world. You know, we study how to treat disease with food, but most importantly, I think our hearts and souls lie in this ability to prevent disease in the first place, and certainly with food. And the American Institute for Cancer Research, for example, is a great organization that teaches us about fruits and vegetables and all of these protective compounds that are in them. And I wonder about broccoli. You know, anytime we focus on one food, broccoli has many protective compounds, granted, but there are so many fruits and vegetables that have protective compounds. What was it or what led your mentor in particular to study specifically broccoli and not other vegetables? There's an easy answer to that question, but first let me go back to what you said when you when you resumed uh, the podium, so to speak. There's a great quote by someone who is both a, an agriculturist and a, and a philosopher, Wendell Berry, you may mm-hmm. be familiar with this, that goes something to the effect of there's no connection between food and health. People are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health and are healed by the health industry, which pays no attention to food. That's great. So it's, your job and, it's your job and my job to try to break down some of those barriers, no? Right. So why broccoli? The reasons are pretty straightforward. When Paul Talalay in the late 80s, early 90s, 
became infatuated with the idea that, that dietary components might be protective against a variety of cancers, he undertook to have folks in the lab bring in a variety of fruits and vegetables and tested them in an assay that had been developed in the lab that was a sort of signal assay for ability to of, of compounds or of of extracts or, or, or mixes from, from plants or from pharmaceuticals, for that matter, to upregulate what they had recently discovered were important, or what they thought at the time were important chemoprotective enzymes or cytoprotective enzymes. So this idea of chemoprotection requires or is predicated on a few assumptions. One of those assumptions is that, that one can reduce oxidative stress, reduce chemical damage, and reduce some of the things that cause mutations and eventually cancer and cause premature cell, cell and tissue death by upregulating protective enzymes in cells and tissues, in the body, if you will. And they, as I say, they, they, in a cell culture system, they discovered a, an enzyme that was very potently upregulated and developed an assay that became a workhorse for for the group back then, and in fact, we still use it to this day, 25 years later. And this assay simply, me- it's, a, it's a simple assay, but it measures the ability of compounds, as I say, or complex extracts to upregulate a, a protective enzyme. Hmm. When they looked at the extracts of a variety of plants, it was broccoli that came out on top of the heap. And so... Following up on that, at precisely the time I came to Baltimore, I was, as a card-carrying botanist, I was expected to help find better broccoli, and because again, that seemed to upregulate, that did upregulate these enzymes the best. And mm-hmm. so, I attempted to do that, but it turned out that broccoli had no discernible characteristic that one could see or smell or feel, you know, when you go to a grocery store or when you go out in the field where it's growing, there was nothing that said, I'm a particularly potent broccoli, I have a lot of sulforaphane in me. Um, so you had to do a chemical assay, you had to do a chemical test, which obviously the consumers don't, don't have, didn't have access to or don't have access to. So coincidentally, my lab was up on the top floor of the, uh, the clinical hospital building in the middle of a busy urban sprawl, busy city, and we were bringing crates full of broccoli from the fields of the eastern shore of Maryland up in the patient elevators and, frankly, getting some of the surgeons upset with us, I think. Um, so we started using incubators, and, and I was growing small plants, growing smaller and smaller plants, in fact, and then realized that, and assaying them, and realized that, yeah, maybe we don't have to look for some special variety of broccoli in the field because it looks like the sprouts or the baby plants, the young plants, have far more activity, far more of this compound sulforaphane than the market stage heads that, you know, you as a nutritionist are used to trying to get people to eat. So anyway, that's how broccoli, I mean, it got identified in a screen and then we kept on pushing on it and it turns out that to this day, as far as I'm aware, sulforaphane from broccoli is still the most potent inducer of these 
these protective cytoprotective enzymes in the plant world, in the natural world. That's fascinating. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions now to make to put this into practical terms. I'm assuming that fresh broccoli, as fresh as you can get it in your backyard garden, just cutting it right there or getting it at a farmer's market, for example, would be better than buying broccoli that's traveled all the way from California to the Midwest or the East Coast. I'm also going to assume that the sprouts are not going to be as a reliable source because, A, they're harder to come by in a supermarket. I have seen some local sprouts at my farmer's market, but they're not as prevalent as the broccoli heads. What kind of difference are we talking about with regard to the sprouts versus, say, a fresh, relatively young head of broccoli? So we're talking about a a fold difference of something between 10 and 100 fold. So we're talking about a huge difference on a concentration basis. Wow. But, of course, you could eat, I mean, you can eat a dinner plate full of broccoli if if you happen to like broccoli and you're but you probably wouldn't do it every day. Um, and you get about the same amount of sulforaphane from, again, talking about averages and rough numbers, um, from a small handful of broccoli sprouts. So you're absolutely correct that a fresh broccoli head is, is packs more punch, probably packs more punch than a head that's been shipped across the country and, and is a, a number of days old, et cetera. And you're absolutely correct about the, the relative abundance of, of sprouts. The interesting thing about, about that, though, is that you, you really, as a consumer, can't identify a good versus, a, I mean, a, a potent or an especially sulforaphane-rich head of broccoli versus one that isn't. If we were in a position in the, in the food industry where everything had one of those little varietal stickers on, such as, you know, gala apples and Honeycrisp apples, or all apples and a few other fruit are, are tagged with these little stickers that that indicate the variety. If that was done with broccoli, you could at least, uh, or with with other vegetables, you could at least identify the, the variety and, and the genetics of broccoli, certainly in part control, or in large part control, how much of these phytochemicals they they contain, because after all, the phytochemicals that protect us also protect the plant in a little bit different way, though. They protect them against predators. They, insects or fungi go to eat a plant, and by and large, they're repelled or perhaps even poisoned by the phytochemicals in the plant. But it turns out that environmental influences and genetics, not not an unfamiliar story, I'm sure, but it's, it's genes and environment that control the levels of phytochemical. And when you're growing a plant in the field, that's, that's of course, what, you're, what you've got. If you're growing sprouts, you pretty much remove environment from the picture because all sprouts are grown pretty much in the same way, room temperature or some controlled temperature, some controlled light and water or moisture in, a, you know, in an indoor growing facility. Um, so you're relying on the genetics there. Mm-hmm. And, and so good sprouts uh, are good sprouts based on the, on the genetics, on the, the variety of broccoli that's grown. 
Mm-hmm. Um, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Jed Fahey. He is the director of the Coleman Emo Protection Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he holds a doctorate in nutritional biochemistry, and we are exploring broccoli sprouts at the moment. But I do want to change our conversation just a little bit and talk more about how we've applied this research. So let's say we don't have access to a farmer's market. Let's say the quality of produce in our supermarkets is bad. Let's say we don't have, say, the resources to get these kinds of foods on our plates. Then we look to supplements. And being a dietitian, I am very much food-based. I really recommend that people get their nutrients from food whenever possible. But there are people who say, for whatever reason, maybe they don't like the taste of broccoli, they would prefer to take a supplement. Is this a viable alternative? It pains me to say I think so. Mm. It pains me to say yes, because like you, or perhaps not like you, but, but I suspect like you, I, for many years, thought that part of my job something I should be ashamed of myself if I couldn't do, was to to convince people to eat healthier diets. And in my particular line of work, my shtick, you know, I have this biochemical knowledge, right, about nutritional biochemistry. Well, I should be able to convey that to, to an average consumer, a lay person, someone who's not a scientist, and persuade them of the value of eating a more healthy diet. Well, I've become disabused of the notion that I really <laughs> can do that very often. It, as I'm sure you know, it's extraordinarily difficult, especially in this country, in this environment, with all of the advertising and marketing uh, inputs that people get. And so I certainly am not saying that I've given up on trying to get people to, to uh, eat healthy diets, um, and I'll continue to preach about the value of whole foods and, and fruits and vegetables and so on and so forth. But I also have to be a realist, and I realize that many people will zone out, tune out, when you preach too much about the value of a healthier diet, You know, ditch the French fries and get up off the couch and do, do some exercise and eat some whole foods. So what do you do when that happens? You either go home with your tail between your legs and pout, or you you know you do the next best thing. And so I think the next best thing is supplementation. For many years, I thought I eat a healthy diet, I eat a good diet, I don't need any supplements. All it does is make expensive urine because supplements are expensive. I mean, you made the point that people might not have the resources for fresh food. Well. Fresh fruits and vegetables will, certainly if they don't have the resources for them, they don't have the resources for supplements. Mm-hmm. They're quite expensive by and large. But anyway, I think as one gets older, when we're all doing that, there probably does come a time when things like vitamin D are in short supply and perhaps it's valuable to take a multivitamin. So, you know, my thinking has evolved in part as I sort of see my habits change over the years, and in part because I see that it's just about impossible to change the way that large swaths of the of the population um, eat. 
and there there is a wealth of supplements on the market now. Many of them are garbage. Many of them are don't contain what they say they contain, but some of them are excellent. So I shouldn't say some are excellent. Some contain what they what they advertise, what they say they have, and to the extent that you're selective and don't take everything that you uh, see an advertisement for, I, I think there's value in, for example, if you don't like broccoli or any of the cruciferous vegetables like cabbage or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts or kohlrabi, yeah, I think there's there would probably be value to taking a, uh, a sulforaphane-rich supplement um, because we know so many studies now. I mean, dozens of published studies, and we've been involved in and are involved in a couple of dozen ongoing small clinical studies. We know this stuff is protective in a number of ways, and so I think it does make some sense to take some supplements. The problem the consumer has, and, and we hope to be part of the solution to this, but I, I'm not sure yet, is identifying supplements that are that contain what they say they have. Mm-hmm. There are a few certifying laboratories that you know will put their seal of approval after doing an analysis on supplement bottles, and I, I'm frankly not very familiar with how exactly how that certification works. But we know for sure because we've tested it just in the in the domain of these sulforaphane phytochemical rich supplements. We know that they're there are a tremendous number of, of supplements that are just garbage. They're filler. They either don't, if they say they have broccoli in them, some of them don't appear to have any. Um, mm. they, many don't have the levels of sulforaphane that they're, they're said to have. So well, if we're having trouble finding good supplements, sure as heck the consumer who's not a scientist and doesn't have an analytical lab at their fingertips is going to have a lot of trouble. I recommend incumbent on us to help try to sort that mess out. I always recommend consumerlab.com for the public when they're trying to identify a supplement. I think they do a, a good job in their analysis, and that's one just helpful tip to throw out there. Mm-hmm. And I think U.S. Pharmacopeia is, an, is another one that I've heard of. So, yeah, I, I don't know if most consumers are aware of where they can check the validity of, of supplement claims, and I'm not sure that there is really a good central um, clearinghouse. They're, they're certainly not regulated by the FDA in the way that, that foods or drugs are. Right. Um, and so... Um, well, I'll, I'll provide a link to both your website and consumerlab.com so people can, can do that. How many milligrams of sulforaphane do you think is protective? Well... You've asked the million-dollar question, um, and I mean that literally. So it's difficult to say, and I'm I'm going to dance around and squirm around and try not to give you a definitive answer. As I say, we've been involved in a large number of small clinical trials, as well as a variety of cell culture and animal studies before that. In the studies in which we and others are showing positive effects or efficacy, the, the dose uh, has been on the order of 100 um, micromoles per per day per average adult. And uh, I never 
calculation in firmly in mind. So let me go, let me make the calculation again for myself, so I can tell you. Um, yes, yeah, so that's something like uh, 17 or 18 uh, milligrams. Is that right? Um, yeah, 17 or 18 um, milligrams per per person per day. That's a very rough metric, and that's of sulforaphane. And again, to to go back to where that number came from, it comes from first in the, in the early stages, we extrapolated about the amount of sulforaphane that we thought someone who ate a lot of broccoli would take in based on averages, and we gave that amount of of a of a broccoli sprout extract uh, standardized to a certain level of sulforaphane. As some of these clinical trials went forward, as I say then, about 100 micromoles, which is a measure of the number of molecules as opposed to how heavy they are, um, and it's the term that most, of, most biochemists use, but 100 micromoles was about the amount that was giving a positive effect in some of the clinical trials. There's a complication, though, and I don't know if we have time for a full explanation, but the short version is that in broccoli or broccoli sprouts or any plants, there's a stable precursor to sulforaphane. It's called glucoraphanin, and that's what is in most of the supplements. And oh. the glucoraphanin gets converted to sulforaphane by bacteria in your gut, in your intestines, or... It actually gets converted when you chew a fresh cruciferous vegetable, like take radish, for example. When you chew it, you get a hot taste after half a minute or so, and that's because the, the enzyme is also pleasant, present in the plant, and it's creating a compound very much like sulforaphane, in the case of radish, from the precursor. This is important because it impacts bioavailability. It turns out that these precursors are quite stable and relatively easy to formulate into supplements. And sulforaphane, the, the actual active ingredient, is a real pain in the neck to work with. It degrades rapidly, and it's very hard to keep in a, in a supplement form. There's one company in France that appears to have successfully done that. There probably are others or will be others soon. Um, but I'm not aware of a, of a high-quality sulforaphane supplement in the, in the U.S. So most of the supplements you, buy, you might buy are the precursor or the precursor plus um, the enzyme, which actually gives better bioavailability. Hmm. Um, Very interesting. We are going to have to end our conversation, unfortunately, because our time is up. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jed Fahey, director of the Coleman Chemo Prevention Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds a doctorate in nutritional biochemistry. And I will make sure that we provide a link to his website. There are lots of frequently asked questions at that site so we can get a better idea. And again, I heard Dr. Fahey speak at the 8th Annual Agroforestry Symposium in Columbia, Missouri, Enhancing Health, Conservation, and Livelihoods, Medicinal Plants, and Agroforestry. 
Thank you so much for being my guest, Dr. Fahey. I think the take-home message is go out and eat some fresh fruits and vegetables and make sure there's broccoli in the mix. There you go. We do think alike. Thanks so much, Melinda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.